Good morning, Jack. So here's your coffee, and I'll have a tea. Ah. <laughs> My fifth of the morning. <laughs> oh, gee, fifth. <laughs> yeah. I'm addicted to tea. So what happens then when you have so many coffees to your brain? Uh, well, it's protecting my brain against Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, cancer and liver disease. So there you go. Oh, wow. I should switch to coffee then. <laughs> yeah, so this is this is sort of a little known thing about coffee in particular. We don't know exactly what it is about it, but it, it seems to have a neuroprotective effect. Um, it could be that it's there's loads of antioxidants in it. That's sort of the leading explanation, that it somehow sort of keeps your brain uh, clear of free radicals which could damage your brain over the period of many years. Uh, but whatever happens is if people drink three to five cups of coffee throughout middle age, when they get into the older post-retirement years, uh, they tend to get horrible diseases like Parkinson's and Alzheimer's between five and ten years later than those who uh, don't drink coffee. Mm, that's fascinating. And that taps indeed into the topic of our conversation because it will be about brain and how the brain works. So, good morning. Welcome to 360 Real Time, a Steelcast podcast with behind-the-scenes conversation on the research impacting the places where people work and learn. I'm Serena Borghero, and I'm here today with Dr. Jack Lewis, brain scientist and author. So, Jack, it's a real pleasure to see you again. Um, I know that you aim to bring science to people. What do you mean by that? Yeah, bringing science to the people. Um, as a neuroscientist who sort of did an undergraduate degree um, in neuroscience at the University of Nottingham, and then I did a PhD and my doctorate from University College London. And then I went on to the Max Planck Institute in Tübingen in Germany to do some postdoctoral research. All the way through this journey, um, I got really frustrated that... There's loads of really fascinating, interesting tidbits in the neuroscience literature that's actually relevant to all of our everyday lives. But it didn't seem to be anyone's job in the sort of neuroscience community to extract those pearls of wisdom and share it with non-scientists. Um, and so I thought, right, well, if no one else is doing it, then I'm gonna. And so I've been collecting these little pearls of wisdom. These are sort of little brain hacks, if you like, that I've been applying to my own life for the last 20 years since I first started learning neuroscience and first started finding them. That speaks, I think, also to the topic of your book titled Sort Your Brain Out, um, where you aim to provide some powerful insights into how to get the most out of our brains. So that sounds fascinating. How, how can we achieve that? What can we do? <laughs> Uh, there are loads of things you can do. It, it ranges from, um, you know, like I always start my talks and end them, actually, with the importance of sleep. Uh, in our busy life, sleep is one of the things that really gets compressed. People tend not, on the whole, to find eight hours every night in which to be asleep. Not, not get off to sleep and then wake up prematurely during the eight-hour period. I mean, actually be asleep for eight hours. That is optimal in terms of preparing your brain for the next day, for the next week, for the next few months. Um, so one thing, it's, it's overnight when your brain does the repair and maintenance. Uh, secondly, it's overnight when your temporary memories reverberating around your brain become uh, permanent memories. 
proteins are laid down in, in, the, in the pathways of, of your memory and they actually enable you to retrieve that memory at a later point. Um, and it's also when toxins are actively eliminated from your brain. So while you can get a, away with a little bit of neglect of your proper sleeping patterns for a while, um, you absolutely mustn't do it for an entire lifetime because the consequences are pretty dire in the long run. Um, you know, we all know that when we're knackered, we don't function as well. But the cumulative effects over the course of decades can can mean that really in later life, you your brain starts to give up the ghost. It starts to malfunction um, at a, well, it's called age-related cognitive decline, happens at a much faster rate if you're chronically sleep deprived. Because um, your brain just needs, you know, one third of our daily existence, the brain needs to shut down and do some basically housework and uh, get everything ready for the for the future. Uh, we see that, by the way, also during the course of the day. So we actually encourage people along the day to take breaks and don't ask the brain to keep on working at the maximum level all day long. So that works for the night. But, understand, but if I understand well what you're saying, it also should be a good rule to apply all along the day to let the brain rest here and there. I agree with you 100%. Um, and, and it goes a step further. The, the, the most creative state of mind is uh, what's called the hypnagogic state. It's when you're just nodding off. You're not, you're not fully awake. You're not completely dead to the world of sleep, but you're in that sort of in-between subliminal world where your conscious sort of thoughts are starting to subside. You're starting to, you know, not constantly think about things you've got to do in the future or, or, or events that happened in the past and your mind sort of almost stills, uh, becomes calm sufficiently to hear the kind of ideas and notions bubbling up from, from your deep sort of subconscious parts of your brain that you don't normally have any conscious access to. And that is where a lot of the solutions to, to our sort of big problems, personal problems, uh, professional problems, uh, that's where they live. And if you never take the time to take a break, take a rest, shut your eyes, not only is that restorative in terms of once you've had 10, 15 minutes of shut eye in the middle of the day, uh, you, you, you function more efficiently over the next couple of hours. Um, but you are much more likely to have those eureka moments, those aha moments, those real breakthroughs if you regularly nap throughout the day on top of the eight hours dead to the world asleep at night. It sounds it sounds bonkers to sort of recommend this as a way to boost cognitive agility and to you know thrive in the workplace, but napping is incredibly important. You and I met uh, indeed at a panel conversation with Microsoft where we were talking about creativity in the workplace and how space design can foster creative thinking. Um, I remember you were sharing some very um, interesting insights about that. Would you share some with us? Yeah, so uh, obviously we're, we're sort of coming out the back of the era of the open plan office. So, you know, obviously your audience knows this better than most, but that whole world of very cost-effective breaking down the walls and, you know, making sure that, you know, very high-stature people in the workplace and very low-stature people in the workplace can mix a little bit more freely and, uh, you know, cross-fertilization of ideas and so forth. But in terms of sort of raw neuroscience, that creates an awful lot 
of noise, sensory noise, visual noise, people moving around in your peripheral vision, distracting you perhaps at a moment where you're about to make a breakthrough or you're really making progress and getting some work done. Um, acoustic noise, you know, people, other people's conversations around you. Um, and so obviously humans are extremely adaptable. We respond to all these distractions by sticking earphones in and listening to music, thereby nullifying the supposed benefits of the open plan office. Like, you know, it's one of these perfect examples of, of a Goldilocks zone, everything in moderation. You don't want to have everyone in a separate cubicle kind of unit where everyone's siloed and the ability to share information is, is very much hobbled as a result. But similarly, you don't want to have a situation where the workplace can only allow uh, people to work in constantly disturbed um, sort of state of mind in the open plan office. You need to have a mixture of both. And you, not only do you need to have the provision for both uh, areas where you can work alone without being disturbed and areas where you can work more collaboratively with other people, but you also need to have the freedom to use those different spaces as you wish. And I suspect that in a lot of workplaces, whilst, for example, there might be a sleep pod uh, on, on one floor of the building, um, whether people are judged or not if they go in to use that sleep pod is another matter and uh, you know there's always this there's always this temptation of people to take advantage of of the sort of freedoms that companies offer them um, at, by let's say having an hour's sleep when you're not actually you haven't really turned up to work uh, ready to work uh, but at the same time if you don't trust people to use uh, you know the facilities uh, for the reasons that you sort of provide them then it means that there's a lot of making provisions for things but not actually giving people the freedom to use them which seems silly to me yes i think you're absolutely right we do have enough zone in our office and i think it helps and it all comes down to culture and leadership as well as you said i have a question for you though does everyone use that nap zone or does uh, some sort of echelons of the company less likely so like the ceos are less likely maybe you know the board level are they more or less likely to use it or the interns are they more or less likely to use it what what's your <laughs> i think the most heavy insight? users are the board members and the leaders because they come from the state so they are often jet lagged ah. so to have a restorative place really helps them and then by seeing them using it all the other employees feel empowered and entitled yes, to do the same. Yes, gives them permission. Well, I think lots of firms can learn from yours because that it's the same with smartphone technology and raising children. <laughs> okay, wait for me. There is it is relevant. So there's smartphones aren't good or bad. It's how intensively you use them, and it's absolutely ridiculous for parents to expect their kids to regulate their own use of technology if the parents don't set the example themselves. And even if, you know, parents will often try and sort of, you know, have a conversation with their toddler with their eyes fixed on their own smartphone screen, toddlers aren't stupid. Even young kids know from the direction of your eyes what is an important commodity to the parent? And if parents are always looking at this magical device that the kid knows it can get cartoons out of but doesn't really understand its other functions, it will know that that is a highly desirable object and therefore will crave that object. So if the, if the board level members use the nap pods, then the rest of the, 
you know, the, the unspoken communication is this is okay, it's allowed, and, and, and we support the use of these sleep pods. Same with, uh, with smartphone use. If you want your kids to use less, uh, you know, get, be less addicted to technology, you need to not incentivize them to crave it, to fetishize that technology in the first place. I was also curious about one blog post that you have on your website, which is about resilient brains and what makes some people resilient and other people more vulnerable. Can you speak to this point? So some people are naturally more resilient than others. Some people are very, very sensitive to stress. And when, and, and when we talk about stress in science, we mean usually uh, high levels of cortisol, the stress hormone. Um, now, the thing is with cortisol is it was designed, designed by the hand of natural selection and evolution, but it, it's, it's sort of there for use in short bursts. Um, cortisol, when it's released from your adrenal glands on top of each of your kidneys, it sort of travels around the bloodstream and it switches, genetic switches in all of the cells of your body and brain, basically putting it into a sort of high alert mode, uh, releasing extra energy um, and ultimately helping you deal with the cause of that problem, with the cause of the stress. But the idea is once you've evaded the predator or once you've escaped whatever sort of worrying, anxiety-inducing situation you're in, those cortisol levels can then dip down to normal levels and then you can go back to being in a more relaxed state of mind. Now, the trouble with um, stress is all about chronic stress. It's that the person never allows their cortisol levels to dip down back to low levels. There's always some kind of anxiety-inducing thought that comes along and causes more cortisol to be released, which causes those energy levels to be very, very high the whole time. And, and just like an engine that's always running on extremely high revs, um, if you do that, it damages the engine. You know, if, 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 your engine, if you're always moving around with the engine racing at between 5,000 and 8,000 revs, you're going to end up, you know, with a broken engine. And it's a similar kind of concept with, with the brains and stress. And so the key difference between those who are resilient and those who are not resilient is in one particular pathway, which enables the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, which is a bit of a mouthful, but it's behind uh, the forehead, right at the front of the brain, this brain area has a pathway which um, attaches, so it's sort of neurons, the wire-like neurons, uh, calm down a part of the brain called the dorsal anterior cingulate cortex, which is sort of on the, uh, on the center fold of the brain, if you like, where the left and right sides of the brain touch. Um, it, the left and right hemispheres rub against each other, and it's just above the bundle of wires that connect the left and right brain hemispheres. So... That dorsal anterior cingulate cortex area, let's just call it the DACC because it's such a mouthful. The reason that brain area is relevant to the question of resilience is because it's involved in processing painful signals. It doesn't matter whether a human is experiencing physical pain of a stubbed toe or a paper cut to the finger or whether it's mental pain sort of emotional turmoil, anxiety, these kind of things. Anything that could constitute a painful stimulus always seems to cause this DACC brain area to light up. 
And so the the connections, the pathway that connects that that part of the brain behind the forehead to that part of the brain on the centerfold seems to reduce the level of activity in that brain area that produces the painful aspects of experience. But resilience in the workplace is about in my view, having developed techniques, having developed um, capacities to use that pathway that was kind of involved in resilience, because essentially what you're doing is, is self-soothing. So you might do that, um, you know, popularly these days through mindfulness meditation, which according to a paper published just three years ago now, uh, which summarized the results of almost 20 different studies investigating whether or not mindfulness works, it, it, it kind of concluded unequivocally that mindfulness is good for physical health and mental health. Uh, and the part that I always find really captures people's attention is that it also boosts cognitive performance. So it's not just good for your physical and mental health, helping you to control stress, helping you to be more resilient, but it actually makes you sharper in your thinking. It helps you to sustain your attention for longer. It helps you to uh, be more fluid in your sort of problem-solving uh, approaches. So rather than being a waste of time, to do 15, 20 minutes of mindfulness a day. It's well worth uh, finding a space for it in your life because there are so many advantages. And so other people, it might be positive self-talk. There are, there are a number of ways of reaching this goal of um, better managing the inevitable inner conflict that happens in all our lives. Um, and uh, and it's, it's down to us as individuals to find out what works for ourselves and not just know what we should do, but actually do it. And for me, across all the things I've done, that's the hardest thing to not, often people know this, all of this stuff, some of this stuff, but how much do they actually do it in their real life, you know? Quite often it's, it's only a crisis point where people think, right, I'm gonna change these habits. Uh, don't wait for the crisis point, do it now, today. <laughs> that's a good advice. And talking to this stress point, we touched briefly on the impact of technology on our lives and how stressful this can be, but also how much more empowering this can be. And I know you have a passion for the topic. So how do you think in your view technology is changing our lives now, but also how will it shape it in the future? What, where are we going? Wow. <laughs> have you got an hour? <laughs> I have more coffee. <laughs> I, I, I could literally talk about that until the sun goes down. Um, so but I often get asked, is technology good or bad for, for our brains? You didn't ask me that, but it's an ill-posed question because there's no such thing. Uh, there's so many different types of technology. It depends on the type of technology, even if it's just, let's say, smartphones. It depends on how you use it, where you use it, what you're doing when you're using it. Um, Take social media, for example. If you use Facebook in order to supplement your existing face-to-face -face, um, interactions with other people, it can make you feel better connected with members of your community, which can lead to uh, feelings of greater well-being. It can be a positive impact in people's life. 
But if a person uses Facebook just to sort of lurk and stalk and monitor, keep up with the Joneses, find out what they're doing, but they don't actually contribute anything to those social interactions themselves, it can make a person feel very, very low. It can exacerbate pre-existing anxiety problems, make a person feel tremendously depressed. So Facebook is neither good or bad. It depends on who's using it and how they're using it. And the same goes for all sorts of technology. Um, you know, whereas 2D video gaming uh, made people fat because it was so stimulating that people would choose to stay in instead of going out and finding other perhaps more physical ways of entertaining themselves, um, I am firmly of the belief that virtual reality will make people fit. Um, if you've got a virtual reality kit that enables you to move around freely in a room in like a three by three meter space, it the games if made properly, naturally encourage you to move and bend and crouch and stalk around physically rather than just sort of teleporting everywhere. Um, and I, I have a kit myself and I, and I love it. And I, I see the future firmly in, in a hopefully we'll learn from the sort of rapid, uh, uh, you know, the rapid proliferation of, of mobile internet devices and the fact that wherever we go these days, we can see people overusing them every spare moment of the day where there's not something directly to do in front of someone, they'll reach for their phone and pull it out. They won't necessarily have an intention of what to do with it, but they will go from one app to the next, to the next, to the next. You know, so perhaps intending to check a text message, but they end up spending 10 minutes on email, you know, another 10 minutes on social media, and then they play a game for 20 minutes. It's like they just wanted to check what that ping was about. So hopefully we will learn from the negative outcomes of that kind of behavior, the kind of behavior where we use technology in an unthinking way, and we'll be able to apply the lessons we learn from it, which are only just coming to light now in the research literature, to creating a better way of using the next wave. At the end of the day, nothing is better for our health and well-being than a walk in the park. You know, communing with nature, feeling the sun on your face, uh, you know, looking at the animals in the forest, going to the beach and just listening to the waves. If our obsession with technology means that we no longer have time for that and we no longer feel touched by the natural world, I think we're going to really be in trouble. But I know you're still an optimist and I know your next project is speaking to that point and talks about how to really get the best out of virtual reality, right? Um, my original love in neuroscience in terms of an area of research was how, does the, how do the visual parts of the brain that process what we see and the auditory parts of the brain that process what we hear, how do those two brain areas integrate information in such a way that our multisensory conscious perception is way better than the sum of its parts? Like if you, know, if you imagine watching a TV show or going to the cinema with the sound off, Uh, it would be rubbish if you just listened to the soundtrack without seeing the beautiful visuals that have been shot. It would be rubbish. But there's ways of putting sights and sounds together in a way that is super additive. It sort of, it really brings the thing to life. That's essentially what virtual reality technology is doing to trick us into thinking that we're under the ocean or exploring space or, or you know, in, in any imaginable kind of building or, or, or situation. So I'm hoping that we'll learn from such examples with old tech, if you like, and be able to apply it to the even sexier, even more exciting new tech that's on the horizon. 
Thank you, Jack. This was an inspiring conversation. <laughs> My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Good to see you again. I hope our listener enjoyed as well. Please feel free to uh, listen and share this podcast. If you're interested in knowing more about how the brain works, you can visit Dr. Jack Luke's website or connect to our Stilkes website for more podcasts. As far as we are concerned, I think it's still before noon. So let's head for a coffee in the sun. <laughs> yeah, one last coffee. Let's do it. Crank up that vitamin D. <laughs> <laughs>